Chapter Seventeen of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, June two thousand seven. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Seventeen, England under Edward the Second. King Edward the Second, the first Prince of Wales, was twenty-three years old when his father died. There was a certain favorite of his, a young man from Gascony named Piers Gaveston, of whom his father had so much disapproved that he had ordered him out of England and had made his son swear by the side of his sickbed never to bring him back. But the prince no sooner found himself king than he broke his oath, as so many other princes and kings did. They were far too ready to take oaths, and sent for his dear friend immediately. Now this same Gaveston was handsome enough, but was a reckless, insolent, audacious fellow. He was detested by the proud English lords, not only because he had such power over the king and made the court such a dissipated place. But also because he could ride better than they at tournaments, and was used in his impudence to cut very bad jokes on them, calling one the old hog, another the stage player, another the Jew, another the black dog of our den. This was as poor wit as need be, but it made those lords very wroth, and the surly Earl of Warwick, who was the black dog. Swore that the time should come when Piers Gaveston should feel the black dog's teeth. It was not come yet, however, nor did it seem to be coming. The king made him Earl of Cornwall and gave him vast riches, and when the king went over to France to marry the French princess Isabella, daughter of Philip le Bel, who was said to be the most beautiful woman in the world, he made Gaveston regent of the kingdom. His splendid marriage ceremony in the church of Our Lady at Bologna, where there were four kings and three queens present, quite a pack of court cards, for I dare say the knaves were not wanting. Being over, he seemed to care little or nothing for his beautiful wife, but was wild with impatience to meet Gaveston again. When he landed at home, he paid no attention to anybody else, but ran into the favorite's arms before a great concourse of people and hugged him and kissed him. And called him his brother. At the coronation which soon followed, Gaveston was the richest and brightest of all the glittering company there, and had the honor of carrying the crown. This made the proud lords fiercer than ever. The people too despised the favorite, and would never call him Earl of Cornwall, however much he complained to the king and asked him to punish them for not doing so, but persisted in styling him Plain Piers Gaveston. The barons were so unceremonious with the king in giving him to understand that they would not bear this favorite that the king was obliged to send him out of the country. The favorite himself was made to take an oath, more oaths, that he would never come back, and the barons supposed him to be banished in disgrace until they heard that he was appointed governor of Ireland. Even this was not enough for the besotted king, who brought him home again in a year's time. And not only disgusted the court and the people by his doting folly, but offended his beautiful wife too, who never liked him afterwards. He had now the old royal want of money 
and the barons had the new power of positively refusing to let him raise any. He summoned a parliament at York, the barons refused to make one, while the favourite was near him. He summoned another parliament at Westminster, and sent Gaveston away. Then the barons came, completely armed, and appointed a committee of themselves to correct abuses in the state and in the king's household. He got some money on these conditions, and directly set off with Gaveston to the border country, where they spent it in idling away the time, and feasting, while Bruce made ready to drive the English out of Scotland. For, though the old king had even made this poor, weak son of his swear, as some say, that he would not bury his bones, but would have them boiled clean in a cauldron, and carried before the English army, until Scotland was entirely subdued, the second Edward was so unlike the first, that Bruce gained strength and power every day. The committee of nobles, after some months of deliberation, ordained that the king should henceforth call a parliament together, once every year, and even twice if necessary, instead of summoning it only when he chose. Further, that Gaveston should once more be banished, and this time on pain of death, if he ever came back. The king's tears were of no avail. He was obliged to send his favourite to Flanders. As soon as he had done so, however, he dissolved the parliament, with the low cunning of a mere fool, and set off to the north of England, thinking to get an army about him to oppose the nobles. And once again he brought Gaveston home, and heaped upon him all the riches and titles of which the barons had deprived him. The lords saw now that there was nothing for it but to put the favourite to death. They could have done so legally, according to the terms of his banishment, but they did so, I am sorry to say, in a shabby manner. Led by the Earl of Lancaster, the king's cousin, they first of all attacked the king and Gaveston at Newcastle. They had time to escape by sea, and the mean king, having his precious Gaveston with him, was quite content to leave his lovely wife behind. When they were comparatively safe, they separated. The king went to York to collect a force of soldiers, and the favourite shut himself up, in the meantime, in Scarborough Castle, overlooking the sea. This was what the barons wanted. They knew that the castle could not hold out. They attacked it, and made Gaveston surrender. He delivered himself up to the Earl of Pembroke, that lord whom he had called the Jew, on the earl's pledging his faith and knightly word that no harm should happen to him, and no violence be done him. Now it was agreed with Gaveston that he should be taken to the castle of Wallingford, and there kept in honourable custody. They travelled as far as Deddington, near Banbury, where, in the castle of that place, they stopped for a night to rest. Whether the Earl of Pembroke left his prisoner there, knowing what would happen, or really left him thinking no harm, and only going, as he pretended, to visit his wife, the Countess, who was in the neighbourhood, is no great matter now. In any case, he was bound as an honourable gentleman to protect his prisoner, and he did not do it. In the morning, while the favourite was yet in bed, he was required to dress himself and come down into the courtyard. He did so without any mistrust, but started and turned pale when he found it full of strange, armed men. "'I think you know me?' said their leader, also armed from head to foot. "'I am the black dog of Ardenne.' The time was come when Piers Gaveston was to feel the black dog's teeth indeed. They set him on a mule, and carried him, in mock state and with military music, to the black dog's kennel, Warwick Castle, where a hasty council, composed of some great noblemen, considered what should be done with him. 
Some were for sparing him, but one loud voice, it was the black dog's bark, I dare say, sounded through the castle hall, uttering these words, You have the fox in your power. Let him go now, and you must hunt him again. They sentenced him to death. He threw himself at the feet of the Earl of Lancaster, the old hog, but the old hog was as savage as the dog. He was taken out upon the pleasant road, leading from Warwick to Coventry, where the beautiful river Avon, by which, long afterwards, William Shakespeare was born, and now lies buried, sparkled in the bright landscape of the beautiful May Day, and there they struck off his wretched head, and stained the dust with his blood. When the king heard of this black deed, in his grief and rage he denounced relentless war against his barons, and both sides were in arms for half a year. But it then became necessary for them to join their forces against Bruce, who had used the time well while they were divided, and had now a great power in Scotland. Intelligence was brought that Bruce was then besieging Stirling Castle, and that the governor had been obliged to pledge himself to surrender it, unless he should be relieved before a certain day. Hereupon the king ordered the nobles and their fighting men to meet him at Berwick, but the nobles cared so little for the king, and so neglected the summons, and lost time, that only on the day before that appointed for the surrender did the king find himself at Stirling, and even then with a smaller force than he had expected. However, he had altogether a hundred thousand men, and Bruce had not more than forty thousand, but Bruce's army was strongly posted in three square columns on the ground lying between the burn or brook of Bannock, and the walls of Stirling Castle. On the very evening when the king came up, Bruce did a brave act that encouraged his men. He was seen by a certain Henry de Bohun, an English knight, riding about before his army on a little horse, with a light battle-axe in his hand, and a crown of gold on his head. This English knight, who was mounted on a strong war-horse, cased in steel, strongly armed, and able, as he thought, to overthrow Bruce by crushing him with his mere weight, set spurs to his great charger, rode on him, and made a thrust at him with his heavy spear. Bruce parried the thrust, and with one blow of his battle-axe, split his skull. The Scottish men did not forget this, next day when the battle raged. Randolph, Bruce's valiant nephew, rode with the small body of men he commanded, into such a host of the English, all shining in polished armour in the sunlight, that they seemed to be swallowed up and lost, as if they had plunged into the sea. But they fought so well, and did such dreadful execution, that the English staggered. Then came Bruce himself upon them, with all the rest of his army. While they were thus hard-pressed and amazed, there appeared upon the hills what they supposed to be a new Scottish army, but what were really only the camp followers, in number fifteen thousand, whom Bruce had taught to show themselves at that place and time. The Earl of Gloucester, commanding the English horse, made a last rush to change the fortune of the day, but Bruce, like Jack the Giant-Killer in the story, had had pits dug in the ground, and covered over with turfs and stakes. Into these, as they gave way beneath the weight of the horses, riders and horses rolled by hundreds. The English were completely routed, all their treasure, stores, and engines were taken by the Scottish men. So many wagons and other wheeled vehicles were seized, that it is related that they would have reached, if they had been drawn out in a line, one hundred and eighty miles. The fortunes of Scotland were, for the time, completely changed. 
and never was a battle won more famous upon Scottish ground than this great battle of Bannockburn. Plague and famine succeeded in England, and still the powerless king and his disdainful lords were always in contention. Some of the turbulent chiefs of Ireland made proposals to Bruce to accept the rule of that country. He sent his brother Edward to them, who was crowned king of Ireland. He afterwards went himself to help his brother in his Irish wars, but his brother was defeated in the end and killed. Robert Bruce, returning to Scotland, still increased his strength there. As the king's ruin had begun in a favourite, so it seemed likely to end in one. He was too poor a creature to rely at all upon himself, and his new favourite was one Hugh le Dispenser, the son of a gentleman of ancient family. Hugh was handsome and brave, but he was the favourite of a weak king, whom no man cared to rush for, and that was a dangerous place to hold. The nobles leagued against him, because the king liked him, and they lay in wait, both for his ruin and his father's. Now the king had married him to the daughter of the late Earl of Gloucester, and had given both him and his father great possessions in Wales. In their endeavours to extend these, they gave violent offence to an angry Welsh gentleman named John de Mowbray, and to divers other angry Welsh gentlemen, who resorted to arms, took their castles, and seized their estates. The Earl of Lancaster had first placed the favourite, who was a poor relation of his own, at court, and he considered his own dignity offended by the preference he received, and the honours he acquired. So he and the barons who were his friends joined the Welshmen, marched on London, and sent a message to the king demanding to have the favourite and his father banished. At first the king unaccountably took it into his head to be spirited, and to send them a bold reply, but when they quartered themselves around Holborn and Clerkenwell, and went down, armed, to the Parliament at Westminster, he gave way, and complied with their demands. His turn of triumph came sooner than he expected. It arose out of an accidental circumstance. The beautiful queen, happening to be travelling, came one night to one of the royal castles, and demanded to be lodged and entertained there until morning. The governor of this castle, who was one of the enraged lords, was away, and in his absence his wife refused admission to the queen. A scuffle took place among the common men on either side, and some of the royal attendants were killed. The people, who cared nothing for the king, were very angry that their beautiful queen should be thus rudely treated in her own dominions, and the king, taking advantage of this feeling, besieged the castle, took it, and then called the two despensers home. Upon this the confederate lords and the Welshmen went over to Bruce. The king encountered them at Boroughbridge, gained the victory, and took a number of distinguished prisoners, among them the Earl of Lancaster, now an old man, upon whose destruction he was resolved. This earl was taken to his own castle of Pontefract, and there tried and found guilty by an unfair court appointed for the purpose. He was not even allowed to speak in his own defence. He was insulted, pelted, mounted on a starved pony without saddle or bridle, carried out, and beheaded. Eight and twenty knights were hanged, drawn, and quartered. When the king had dispatched this bloody work, and had made a fresh and a long truce with Bruce, he took the despensers into greater favour than ever, and made the father Earl of Winchester. One prisoner, and an important one, who was taken at Boroughbridge, made his escape, however, and turned the tide against the king. This was Roger Mortimer, 
always resolutely opposed to him, who was sentenced to death, and placed for safe custody in the Tower of London. He treated his guards to a quantity of wine into which he had put a sleeping potion, and, when they were insensible, broke out of his dungeon, got into a kitchen, climbed up the chimney, let himself down from the roof of the building with a rope-ladder, passed the sentries, got down to the river, and made away in a boat to where servants and horses were waiting for him. He finally escaped to France, where Charles le Bel, the brother of the beautiful queen, was king. Charles sought to quarrel with the king of England, on pretense of his not having come to do him homage at his coronation. It was proposed that the beautiful queen should go over to arrange the dispute. She went, and wrote home to the king, that as he was sick and could not come to France himself, perhaps it would be better to send over the young prince, their son, who was only twelve years old, who could do homage to her brother in his stead, and in whose company she would immediately return. The king sent him, but both he and the queen remained at the French court, and Roger Mortimer became the queen's lover. When the king wrote, again and again, to the queen to come home, she did not reply that she despised him too much to live with him any more, which was the truth, but said she was afraid of the two despenseurs. In short, her design was to overthrow the favorite's power, and the king's power, such as it was, and invade England. Having obtained a French force of two thousand men, and being joined by all the English exiles then in France, she landed within a year at Orwell, in Suffolk, where she was immediately joined by the earls of Kent and Norfolk, the king's two brothers, by other powerful noblemen, and lastly by the first English general who was dispatched to check her, who went over to her with all his men. The people of London, receiving these tidings, would do nothing for the king, but broke open the tower, let out all his prisoners, and threw up their caps and hurrahed for the beautiful queen. The king, with his two favorites, fled to Bristol, where he left old Despenser in charge of the town and castle, while he went on with the son to Wales. The Bristol men being opposed to the king, and it being impossible to hold the town with enemies everywhere within the walls, Despenser yielded it up on the third day, and was instantly brought to trial for having traitorously influenced what was called the king's mind, though I doubt if the king ever had any. He was a venerable old man, upwards of ninety years of age, but his age gained no respect or mercy. He was hanged, torn open while he was yet alive, cut up into pieces, and thrown to the dogs. His son was soon taken, tried at Hereford, before the same judge, on a long series of foolish charges, found guilty, and hanged upon a gallows fifty feet high, with a chaplet of nettles round his head. His poor old father and he were innocent enough of any worse crimes than the crime of having been friends of a king, on whom, as a mere man, they would never have deigned to cast a favorable look. It is a bad crime, I know, and leads to worse, but many lords and gentlemen, I even think some ladies too, if I recollect right, have committed it in England, who have neither been given to the dogs, nor hanged up fifty feet high." The wretched king was running here and there all this time, and never getting anywhere in particular, until he gave himself up, and was taken off to Kenilworth Castle. When he was safely lodged there, the queen went to London and met the Parliament, and the bishop of Hereford, who was the most skilful of her friends, said, What was to be done now? Here was an imbecile, indolent, miserable king upon the throne, 
wouldn't it be better to take him off and put his son there instead? I don't know whether the queen really pitied him at this pass, but she began to cry. So the bishop said, Well, my lords and gentlemen, what do you think upon the whole of sending down to Kenilworth, and seeing if his majesty, God bless him, and forbid we should depose him, won't resign? My lords and gentlemen thought it a good notion, so a deputation of them went down to Kenilworth, and there the king came into the great hall of the castle, commonly dressed in a poor black gown. And when he saw a certain bishop among them, fell down, poor feeble-headed man, and made a wretched spectacle of himself. Somebody lifted him up, and then Sir William Trussell, the Speaker of the House of Commons, almost frightened him to death, by making him a tremendous speech to the effect that he was no longer a king, and that everybody renounced allegiance to him. After which Sir Thomas Blount, the steward of the household, nearly finished him, by coming forward and breaking his white wand, which was a ceremony only performed at a king's death. Being asked in this pressing manner what he thought of resigning, the king said he thought it was the best thing he could do. So he did it, and they proclaimed his son next day. I wish I could close this history by saying that he lived a harmless life in the castle, and the castle gardens at Kenilworth many years, that he had a favorite and plenty to eat and drink, and having that, wanted nothing. But he was shamefully humiliated. He was outraged and slighted, and had dirty water from ditches given him to shave with, and wept, and said he would have clean, warm water, and was altogether very miserable. He was moved from this castle to that castle, and from that castle to the other castle, because this lord or that lord or the other lord was too kind to him, until at last he came to Berkeley Castle, near the river Severn, where, the lord Berkeley being then ill and absent, he fell into the hands of two black ruffians, called Thomas Gournay and William Ogle. One night, it was the night of September the 21st, one thousand three hundred and twenty-seven, dreadful screams were heard by the startled people in the neighboring town, ringing through the thick walls of the castle and the dark, deep night, and they said, as they were thus horribly awakened from their sleep, May heaven be merciful to the king, for those cries forebode that no good is being done to him in this dismal prison. Next morning he was dead, not bruised or stabbed or marked upon the body, but much distorted in the face, and it was whispered afterwards that those two villains, Gournay and Ogle, had burnt up his inside with a red-hot iron. If you ever come near Gloucester, and see the centre tower of its beautiful cathedral, with its four rich pinnacles, rising lightly in the air, you may remember that the wretched Edward II was buried in the old abbey of that ancient city, at forty-three years old, after being for nineteen years and a half a perfectly incapable king. End of chapter 17